But it's good to be here today and know that many of our folks are getting one last hoorah in before the uh, summer ends officially, but it's good to see you here this morning. Always good to be gathered with the people of God. I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. This will be the last of kind of our series in the Psalms this summer, at least this late part of the summer. Psalm 146. Next Sunday, we were going to begin our uh, time together through the book of Romans. So we'll be looking at Romans chapter 1 next Sunday, but today our attention will be given to Psalm 146. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us eyes to see, for ears to, he- for ear- to have ears to hear, and for hearts to receive. Lord, we know that it is through your word that you save sinners. And it is by your word that you make us stronger and conform us into the image of your son. So Lord, we pray for that to happen even now, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your life's greatest work? Let that question sit with you a minute. What is your life's greatest work? I think it's a fair question to ask on a weekend like this weekend. It's Labor Day weekend. It's a good question to consider on a weekend where work is recognized and even honored. After all, we spend a lot of time, energy, and money to make sure we end up with good work, don't we? But what is your life's work? How would you answer that question? The way I would answer that question perhaps is a bit different, but I think the answer to it is the same for all of us. Our most important work is never and will never be compensated by a paycheck. When we think about our life's greatest work, we should think about the privilege, responsibility, the honor that we have to delight in and give God praise. The praise of God is the highest joy and duty of man. Today we're going to look at Psalm 146. In fact, if you were to just do a cursory look of the last five Psalms, Psalm 146 through 150, you'll notice that they are filled with praise. In fact, all five of them begin and end with praise the Lord. It's the first line, the last line of these last five Psalms. 
In recent weeks, we've taken a look at what we've called Psalms of Lament, where we have wrestled with the psalmist a bit in life's struggles and and difficulties that we face and how the psalmist will seek to get through those in a way as he focuses on who the Lord is. I thought it would be fitting to end this short series in the Psalms where all true lament ends, and that is ultimately the praise and glory of God. So let's read Psalm 146 together. Psalm 146, beginning in verse 1, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So this psalm begins and ends, just as I have said, it begins and ends with praise. This morning I am making the, not just suggestion, but the argument that praise is our life's greatest work. And as we think about that fact, I want us to consider three, at least three, there are actually going to be more than that, but three main truths about the praise that we give to God. Three things that we consider from this psalm, we could consider thousands of things, right? But from this text, at least three truths about the praise we give God. First of all, and we see this in verses one and two, that praise is a lifelong commitment. Praise is a lifelong commitment. There in verse, these opening verses, the psalmist makes his praise of God prominent, doesn't he? He begins with the call to praise, praise the Lord. It's an imperative, it's a command. He's, he's saying to someone, a congregation of people or a group of people, God's people, praise the Lord. And then notice what he does. The first line is a general call to praise God. Then the second line is a call to himself. He's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So here we have a call to worship, a summons to praise the living God. And this call is for everyone, including the writer of this psalm. Not only is there a call to worship, but we see in verse 2 there is a response. Not only does the psalmist talk to himself, he talks back to himself, he answers himself. So to encourage some of you, we have biblical warrant now to talk and answer to yourself. Notice a few things about the response. So it's clear, right, before we jump into this, it's clear that there's a call upon our lives to praise the Lord. But notice something about the response. First of all, praise is something we resolve to do. 
If you came here today thinking just mystically or magically that as you usher yourself into this room, you'll automatically be caught up with praise, you'll be sorely disappointed. If you were expecting the praise team to usher you into praise, you will be sorely disappointed as good as they are and as thankful for them as I am. If you are dependent upon me this morning to somehow make you praise God, you will be radically disappointed. Praise is something by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, that you resolve to do. Notice the psalmist says in verse two, in response to his own command, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalmist here, some say is David, others actually suggest that this is post-exile, that it's actually after the people of God have come back from Babylon and now have resettled a bit, and some would suggest it's even a psalm of Haggai or Zechariah. I don't know exactly whose psalm this is, but the point would obviously remain the same. I think what we see throughout this psalm is quite universal in its application and understanding of what we're being called to do. But the psalmist is here responding to his own call to worship. It's as if he's having an internal dialogue with his own soul and he's now responding with this resolve and this commitment to praise God. I think this is good for us to see this simple command and this simple response, praise the Lord, I will praise the Lord. It's good for us to see because it implies that there will be times, even seasons of life, where we will not be in a posture of praise. Whatever the case may be, there will be times in your life where you simply aren't engaged in the praise of God. Life's circumstances will oftentimes not lend themselves to that kind of posture. And there will be plenty of times when it will take a holy resolve to praise the living God. I want, you to, I, want to see, I want you to see another example of this in the Bible. Let's turn to the book of Habakkuk. Um, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, it's in the latter part of the Old Testament. It's right after Nahum and right before Zephaniah. Is that helpful? Yes. Habakkuk, it's a short little book, three chapters. Um, it's there towards the end of your Old Testament, a minor prophet. Habakkuk complains to God about the people of God. In verses two through four, he's saying, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why are you going to let your people continue and persist in sin? That's his complaint. The law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. So he's complaining to God about the sin that has saturated the people of God. And the Lord answers him. He says, okay, I hear you. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up this wicked, ungodly people and they're going to come and judge my people. Habakkuk, if you read the whole book, he he starts to back up a bit. He's like, oh, wait a minute. This is not what I was asking for. Uh, I just want you to do something to them. And God says, I am. I'm going to raise up this Chaldeans, 
these wicked, evil people, and they're gonna come and bring judgment upon my people and take them into exile, destroy them. Chapter three, Habakkuk is in prayer as he's trying to contemplate all of what this means. And I want you to notice in verse 17 through 19, the final words of Habakkuk to the Lord. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Though all of this bad is happening, he's saying, that all, the, all these things are, are, are weighing down upon us, yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. If anyone had an excuse to not be in a posture of praise, it would have been Habakkuk, but by the time he gets to the end of himself and realizes what's going on, he says, yet, though all of this bad is happening, though all of these things are coming down, though all of this is going on, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He's resolved to praise God because of who God is. We'll see that a little bit later in our text in Psalm 146. Friend, perhaps you even find yourself this hour struggling with a posture of praise. Something we must keep ever before us because there are plenty of times we are far from our life's work, the praise of God. Obviously, there are many things in life that will hinder God's praise. Indeed, the enemy will do his best to discourage or divert our praise whenever possible. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin will cause there to be a lack of praise in our lives. Clinging too closely to the things of this world, on and on we could go. And as you'll see throughout this psalm, and indeed throughout these final psalms, if you were to look at the final psalms of praise throughout the, the, these last chapters, the driving motivation that results in praise is not a reflection upon circumstances, which often drives us from praise, but it's a reflection upon God, the object of our praise, a reflection upon the nature and the character of God. I think I've maybe used this quote in years past, but Michael Horton says, vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads us to making our own praise the object. Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself, and we are caught up with our own worship experience rather than God, whose character and acts are the only proper focus. And if you've lost your desire to praise God, many things that could be going on in your life, but I guarantee that one of the prominent things is that you have taken your eyes off of him. You're not meditating upon him. You're not reflecting upon his goodness and upon his character, upon his nature. If you've lost your desire to praise him, confess that to him. You're going to resolve to praise the Lord. It must be driven by a resolve to know him, to seek him. And by the way, praise of God, the praising of God is 
often a distinguishing mark between the Christian and the non-Christian. A non-Christian has nothing in him or herself compelling them towards the worship of God. Quite the contrary. So friend, you may find yourself coming here today and you have zero desire of praising you because you've never had it. You think God's okay, you think Jesus is a good guy, but you certainly don't, you don't live in a posture of praise. You're not thinking about the majesty and the greatness of God. It could very well be, friend, that you may not know him, that you may not be walking in faith and trusting in Christ. And we would encourage you to consider that this morning and consider your own heart before God. Second reality that we see in this text, we see that praise is something we resolve to do. It's a choice that you make. It's not something that just happens. But it is our life's work. I said this earlier. Notice the psalmist's response. He's expressing his resolve, I will praise the Lord. How, what's the extent? As long as I live, while I have my being. In fact, in the previous psalm, in Psalm 145, David says in verse two, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Matthew Henry once said, that which is the great end of our being ought to be our great employment and delight while we have any being. Consider something. How much of your life is caught up with the praise of God? Just think about that question. I know that's kind of a vague question, but I want you to think about it. How much of your life is caught up with praise? I'm not talking about your, um, uh, you know, jamming out to Pandora or Spotify or whatever it is you use. You know, the, the Christian playlist. That, that certainly is a part of praise. You can certainly engage in true praise of God in that way, but I'm not talking about just that. If praise is our life's work, that means some aspect of praise ought to be prominent in our hearts all the time. And you say, Pastor, that's impossible. How can I possibly praise God every breath that I take? How much of your life is caught up with considering God, reflecting upon his character, his nature, his presence, his glory. I had a good friend of mine one time who asked me a question that I probably mentioned this before, I'll never forget it. He says, Adam, when was the last time you really noticed the presence of God in your life? It's a good question. If God is omnipresent, he's present everywhere all the time, right? When are you conscious of that? You can be conscious of that at work, at home, in the car. First thing when you wake up in the morning. This is part of praise, just simply recognizing the reality of God, recognizing who he is. How often is your life caught up with this? How often are you pointing out the greatness of God to others? Just simply look, look, the sky, look how beautiful that is. Isn't God great? How often are parents 
speaking of God to their kids, a husband or wife to their spouse. Friends, looking for every opportunity to magnify God's glory. What, what are your conversations like? A lot of our conversations are, are, are quite frankly, useless, right? We talk a lot about a lot of things, but how often, just in our daily conversation with others, are we caught up with the goodness and greatness of God? I'm asking myself that as much as I'm asking you because it's, it's something we should consider. Being caught up with the praise of God means that we speak often about him. Is it apparent to other people that you have a regular and growing awareness of the supremacy of God in all things? I'm not saying, are you walking around speaking about these deep concepts of theology and the doctrine of God? Well, you should be to some degree, but, but I'm just, are you, are you even aware in your conversations that God is present, that he is good, and that he is faithful, and he is righteous, and he is holy, and he is loving, he is caring, he is generous, he is compassionate, and on and on we could go. Are you communicating that in your conversations? If we were to pull aside your coworkers and say, hey, um, what is this person's life about? What would they say? What would they say? What about your private meditations? Friend, do you read your Bible regularly? Or do you read it and just check the mark and move on? Yeah, I have to ask myself that question because, you know, I have a daily Bible reading thing that's got little boxes to check when you read the passage. I like checking boxes. That's just how I operate. I like a checklist. But the question is, am I reading that just to check the box? Or do I come away just thinking about some aspect of who God is and giving him praise just in, the, just in my heart? Friends, praise is something that not only marks us in any given day, but it should mark us in any given moment and remain the case throughout the course of our lives. As long as I live, while I have my being, it's a lot different than an hour on Sunday, isn't it? Praise. Praise is a lifelong commitment. Number two. Praise is an expression of our hope. We see this in verses three through five. The psalmist says, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And then we'll continue on in just a moment. When you move to verse three, it first seems a bit odd or maybe a bit out of place. Verses one and two are caught up with the praise of God. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to God. Verse three, put not your trust in princes. It's like, okay. But as the psalmist moves from the call to worship, I think what he's doing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's wanting to briefly clarify the object of our worship. You see, the direction of our praise is typically guided by the object of our hope. And here the psalmist reminds us that there can be a wrongly directed hope and a rightly directed hope. Look primarily here at the wrongly directed hope. He says in verse 
three, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Friends, the honest truth is that there are times when people can become the object of our hope and devotion. Every single one of us have that temptation today where you put too much hope and trust in a person. We leave our hopes in the hands of a man. That can show up in a couple of ways. One, valuing others more than God. Again, there are times when we simply are tempted to put too much trust in someone else. I mean, this really is, is part of what paved the way for the fall of, of man and, and to sin, wasn't it? Adam and Eve in the garden, they were listening to the tempter there, and the, the serpent. They were putting more trust and more hope in his word than they were God's word. Satan tempts Adam and Eve there and tempts them to doubt God and direct their hope elsewhere. And they were basically valuing his word over God's word. We need to recognize this temptation and that it's great. We're talking here about practical idolatry. Diverting our hope, diverting our cause to another. We need to honestly recognize that this is often more prevalent in our hearts than not. Because after all, there are many people in the world, many people in the world, many people in your life who have a lot of power and influence over you. It's true. You live in a society, in a world where there is ranks of all kinds of authority people of influence who have power, so to speak, in their hands and decisions they make impact you. And if they happen to be likable, maybe they also have or carry your own political preferences or they tend to flatter you in some way, then they become someone we put a lot of stock in, a lot of value in, a lot of hope, should we say, in. Now, respect and honor are certainly appropriate Christian responses, aren't they? We're told, we're commanded to honor those in authority over us. We're even commanded to pray for them, to, to follow their leadership so long as they don't lead us into sin. But sometimes we don't stop there. We go further. Friends, if your world comes crumbling down based upon who gets elected to public office, you probably have a wrongly directed hope. Or, if your life is now transformed because who gets elected to public office, you probably have a wrongly directed hope. It doesn't have to be a political leader or some prominent leader. It could be other things or other people. You might be putting too much value in a particular relationship as if these people in your life are the answer to all your problems. Take these people away and you will crash in despair. 
Friends, again, we should have a level of respect and care and appreciation for people, but when they become our all-encompassing hope, then we have a huge idolatrous problem. Valuing others more than God. This is what we're clearly commanded against in verse 3 and 4. Why? The people that he's speaking about, the princes in this case, which we could just kind of classify as kind of leaders or rulers, guess what? They're going to die one day. And all the plans they had, going to the grave with them. All of your hopes, all of your, all of your delights, all of your excitement, all the things that you've put in this person, going to the grave one day. Be careful who you trust. There's only one man that went to the grave and rose again. And his name is Jesus. Another way this happens is valuing ourselves more than God. If we really want to get honest, sometimes it's not even others that we've elevated over God. It's ourself. Sometimes we're prone to put too much hope in our own wisdom and abilities and successes more than we are trusting God. We can even get to the point of thinking we don't even need God. Friends, we all make lousy gods. Wrongly directed hope, there is a rightly directed hope we see in verse five. In contrast to verses three and four, we see that where our hope should rest. Don't trust in princes, verse three and four. They die and go to the grave and their plans with them. Verse five, blessed is he. So you can kind of see this contrast here. Don't trust in earthly princes. Don't do that, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So there is a rightly directed hope, which leads us to point number three, that our praise is encouraged by God and his faithfulness. We see this in the rest of the passage today. Really the meat of this psalm is found here because it's the foundation that drives everything else that we've seen prior. The only way that you're properly going to praise God and resolve to praise God is to know him for who he is. And that's exactly what the psalmist does is he unpacks this, this, this snapshot of the character and nature of God. This is not exhaustive by any means, but it's enough to leave you with a lifelong pursuit of praise. Here we see various details of God's activity that should spur us on to praise him. It's a brief catalog of sorts that shows us, shows us the faithfulness of God. We just read them and then we'll walk back through them together. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. A couple of things here. I want you to see, first of all, the extent of God's faithfulness. Verse 6. 
Blessed is he, we're told, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord. Then I think, by the way, what you see in the rest of this passage is, is an unpacking of how he helps and why he is our hope. I'm not going to I'm going to unpack verse five by explaining verses six through 10 because he's giving the examples of how he does that. But before we even get there, I want you to notice the extent of his faithfulness who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith, how long? Forever. The Lord who is our help, the Lord who is our hope, the Lord who is the very creator of all things is the very one who also stays the course with his people forever. All of us, to one degree or another, have experienced the unfaithfulness of another. If you've never experienced unfaithfulness, people not keeping their word, raise your hand. Okay, good. All of us know what it's like to be the object of someone's insincere word or unfaithfulness to, to one degree or another. We've all experienced it. Someone's not kept their word, someone's betrayed you, someone's been hurtful. Friend, listen, that'll never happen with God, ever. There will not be a time when you look back and say, God abandoned me. There'll never be a time, there'll never be a moment when you look back throughout the course of your life, even now, if you were to look back to say, God forsook me here, he, he left me alone, he left me. You won't be able to say that. There's this promise of security here. He keeps faith forever. Then I want you to see now the examples of his faithfulness. In verses six and following, we have the help of God promised in verse five, further explained and defined quite practically for us. Let me just walk through them with you briefly. Verse seven, God is just. God is not going to overlook the ungodly acts of a wicked world, especially when it relates to the oppression of his own people. He executes justice for the oppressed. Recently, I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah in personal devotions, and most of the book is a warning to Israel, to God's people, that if they don't repent, they're gonna be judged. They're gonna be disciplined. And God's gonna raise up the Babylonians and they're gonna come and destroy Jerusalem and take them captive. That's what happens, by the way. They don't repent, and that's exactly what happens. Most of the book is a warning. But when you get to the end of Jeremiah, at the end of the book, not only has God done what, what he said he would do. In fact, you get to the very end of the book and you see that, and then the book after that is the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah is just weeping and lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem. So God was faithful to his word. He kept his word. They didn't repent. He brought about judgments discipline. But by the end of the book, there in, the, in, in chapters, uh, probably 40, chapters 46 um, and following, God also speaks a word of judgment to other nations around them. Not just God's people, but other nations. You have Egypt and the Philistines, 
Moab in chapter 48, Ammon in chapter 49. And then in chapter 50, you have God pronouncing judgment upon Babylon. Now, wait a minute, this is Babylon, the same people that he's raising up to come and discipline his own people. Now in chapter 50 of Jeremiah, God's judging them? Yes. Do you hear what he says in verses 17 through 19 of Jeremiah chapter 50? Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, the northern kingdom. Now, at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones, southern kingdom. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desire shall be satisfied in the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. You see what the Lord has done is, even as God in his mysterious sovereignty raised up this evil nation to bring discipline to his own people, he's gonna turn right around and hold this wicked evil nation for their ungodly wicked ways. They're gonna hold them accountable. He's going to bring about justice for the oppressed. And you see how he's done that time and time and time again. God is a just God. He will not allow evil to ultimately prevail. He will have the final word. And we can trust that. Number two, he is also savior. Look at verse eight. No, he says he gives food to the hungry. We'll come back to the minute in verse seven, but... The end of verse seven, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blinds. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And when you read verse, the, the last sentence of verse seven and, and, verses, and verse eight, it sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 61, which reads, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And he continues there. Jesus picks up on that same chapter in Isaiah chapter 61 and the gospel of Luke chapter 4. And he reads it in the temple, quotes it. There in chapter four, verse 18, and in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we know that the Lord indeed sets prisoners free. He physically opens blind eyes and he physically lifts up those who are bowed down. But I can't help but think that this is language, though he does these things physically, this is language pointing to a greater and deeper reality, a language of salvation and deliverance. He says there that he loves the righteous. And how are we made righteous? Not by our own works, but by looking to and trusting in another. He loves the righteous. God is savior. He is just, he is savior. Number three, he is compassionate. Verse nine, the Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow. 
and the fatherless. Back in verse seven, he gives food to the hungry. I want you to notice a common truth for all of these kinds of people. The sojourner, the hungry, the widow, the fatherless. All of these are people without resources. All of these are dependent upon another outside of themselves to help them. And we're told here that the Lord cares for them. He cares for them. He, he's compassionate. He's compassionate, which compels us to praise him. He is savior, which compels us to praise him. He is just, which compels us to praise him. And by the way, one of the ways that we can praise God, which remember, the praise of God is our life's work. One of the ways that we can do that is by emulating his heart of compassion, by reaching out to those who are hurting and in need. The way that we love and care for the immigrant, the way that we love and that we care for the widow and the fatherless. As we engage in serving these people in our world that's out there before us, we are in essence giving God praise because he is compassionate. He is good. Even practically, those suffering in the wake of this recent hurricane, as you seek to serve those in need, those without resource, you are emulating the compassionate nature of God and therefore bringing praise to God. He's just, he is savior, he is compassionate, and he is king. Look at verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. God reigns over all. He reigns over all, and because he is king over all, because he is just, as we saw early on, there at the end of verse nine, the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. He will hold them accountable, and he will bring them to an end. So the day of the wicked, their day is numbered. But God's day, God's reign unending. There'll never be a history book written where God breathes his last breath or God rules for his last day. That book will never be written, friend, because God reigns forever and ever. He is king over all. Our God's reign even endures to all generations. Since God reigns over all generations, then we must put an, we must make an ever diligent effort in making sure the next generation sees and knows God for who he is and therefore praises him. Other people benefit from your life's work, don't they? And the things that you do? Well, guess what? Even in our greatest of life's work and the praise of God, which ultimately is for the glory and honor of God, other people will see that and notice that and be changed and impacted by that whether in your serving of them or whether you're modeling before others of what it means to be a follower of the true and living God. And God is king. Therefore, he is worthy of our allegiance and he is worthy of our praise forever and ever. Much like this psalm does we will end where we began. The praise of God is the highest joy and duty 
of man. I read a quote this week from Kevin DeYoung. He said, we are never in danger of thinking too highly of Jesus. And you'll never be in that danger. You'll never be in danger of thinking too highly of Jesus. The praise of God, the praise of our Lord is the highest joy and duty of man and you will spend the rest of your days on earth and all of your days in eternity in engaging in this glorious work that we've been called to and given the joy of knowing. Friend, as you pursue that, have you made the praise of God your lifelong commitment? Is this something that you've resolved to do? Is it? Are you placing your hope in the Lord alone? Or do you find yourself trusting in man way too much? And friend, do you keep before you the very specific acts of God's faithfulness? The fact that he is just, the fact that he is your savior, the fact that he is compassionate, the fact that he is king and that his rule and reign will never end. Is that something you think about often? And if you do, There'll be only one response. And that response is expressed quite clearly in three words. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we indeed recognize your greatness. And our desire is to praise you. Father, it may be, though, that we come today and realize that but many times that is not our posture. Many times we are caught up with the weight of our own sin and guilt. We're not resting in the gospel like we have been called to. We're caught up and ensnared by the things of this world, Lord, the things that are so attractive, things that we think we must pursue. We find ourselves oftentimes trusting in men, in people, in systems, in things that were they to crumble, Lord, our hopes and dreams would crumble with them. Father, would you make us a people of praise, not of man, but a people of praise of the true and living God. May we with the psalmist be able to say, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my days, as long as I live. May that be the reality of every person here today. May that be our resolve, O God. And Father, if it is not, God, would you show us? And would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to confess our sin and selfishness before you today? And would you help us see that you are our help and you are our hope and that you are the only one worthy of praise and trust. God, we thank you. Thank you for this reminder this morning and thank you for this great hope that's ours in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.